Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. This morning has been pretty awesome in a lot of ways. Um, We did not, I think Nate shared, have our normal meeting where we got to kind of plan and pray and talk things over. He left keys somewhere. I got here at like 8.40, like five minutes before we started. It's all over the place. Um, But sometimes uh, I think there's good in that. And so I'm going to switch some things up as we talk about Exodus chapter 19 from how I did last service. Uh, But if you have a Bible, you're going to want to follow along. Exodus chapter 19. Here's a little bit of context as we dive into this. God has already worked powerfully. He's a God who hears and listens. So often we don't think of him that way, but he is a person who hears our prayers and cries and questions. And so he heard the prayers and cries and questions of his people oppressed and abused and enslaved in Egypt. And he responded. We have a God that responds with action. And so he did. He saved them out of Egypt, and now he's led them into the desert where multiple times they're like, why would you bring us here just to kill us now by uh, hunger, starvation, or thirst? And he's made them a promise in the midst of all of this that they're going through, that they will be his treasured possession. That's their identity, that he treasures them and values them and will protect and provide for them. And then he also commissions them with that identity that they will be a priesthood of believers, that by the way they live and love and act and and are human, the rest of the world will actually look in and go, that is good. What is different? What is good about that? What is the source? And it will be none other than Jesus. And so that's kind of the context where we come upon Exodus 19. I did not do this last time, but I'm just going to read the whole chapter. It's pretty weird, so kind of just soak in and process what's happening. Here we go. Exodus 19, Israel at Sinai. In the third month, on the same day of the month that the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. After they departed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did, meaning his faithfulness, to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation." These are the words that, are you, that you are to say to the Israelites. There's this proposal of sorts. Here's their response. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. There's a proposal of sorts. God says, here's what I have for you if you want it. And they say, yes, that is our desire. Yes, that is what we want. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Then Moses reported the people's words to the Lord, and the Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. 
They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows. No animal or man will live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet sound, and all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him. In the thunder, verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must purify themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. But Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us. Put a boundary around the mountain and consider it holy. And the Lord replied to him, go down and come back with Aaron. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. I think this is one of those passages where these kind of ideas about who God is are concocted, where we think, if I do bad, God strikes me down with lightning. And as goofy and ridiculous and really just kind of stupid as that sounds, because I've never seen God strike anybody down with lightning yet, I think we actually live with that. Have you ever lived with that? Maybe you don't actually think lightning is going to come strike you down, but there is this fear, there's this pressure, there's this curiosity and wondering, if I don't do this right, or I do that wrong, or I don't do this good thing, then God will respond in such a way. And you read this passage and you go, okay, yeah, you know what? I can kind of see how you might think that. What is actually happening in this? Why does God have these seemingly arbitrary rules and boundaries and functions that are happening in the midst of this chapter? This is one of those chapters that's honestly a little bit confusing. And so I want to take uh, some time to break down what I think we see biblically happening here. There's a few things going on. Number one, you see these layers of boundaries, Moses is near the top of the mountain with God alone, beneath him, way beneath, after he goes up and down and up and down, which frankly sounds really exhausting. Moses must have been in incredible shape because that was a lot of up and down a mountain in one chapter. Way below him is Aaron and the priests. They're allowed to kind of be a little bit one level closer. And then beyond them is the rest of the people consecrated. And it sounds kind of random, but what's going to happen next for Israel is they're going to build something called the tabernacle. And based on that, eventually they'll build the temple. And in the temple, there will be the Holy of Holies, the most inner circle. And then the next layer where only the high priests can go. And then the next layer where other priests can go. And then the next layer where all the people and then the Gentiles. We see that modeled here. A foundation of how that system is going to function is given. 
After that, there's kind of the question of what in the world does sex have to do with anything in this chapter? Why would this God care whether or not these people have sex prior to this moment on this mountain? And there's probably two reasons. Biblically, uh, from time to time, we'll see a command in the scriptures where God tells his people to abstain from sex for a short period of time to mark this moment, to signify something special that's going to happen, to prepare them for that. I think that's part of it. The other part is probably that regionally, there were other religions that mixed sex and worship. And so as those two things were mixed, they would be led into worshiping other gods. And one of the primary things God is doing in this moment is creating a boundary that he and he alone is to be God, that he and he alone is to be worshiped and that is not meant to be shared. The last thing that I think is pretty significant and pointed in this is that you can imagine a scenario after this mountain as Israel faces all kinds of challenges and Moses says, God told me that they'd be like, no, I think you made that up, Moses. I think this is kind of like a power play. We didn't hear God tell you this or that. You're just making it up. Who gave you that authority? But God's putting on quite the show here with the thunder and the smoke and the mountain shaking. Largely so that there will be no question that Moses is not making up some arbitrary rules, but that God himself is saying, this is what is good. On top of all that, though, as I process it, I still don't know how significant it is. I think there's more to what is going on in this moment and and how God is functioning and what he's intending to do, what his design is for this moment. It makes me think of a modern-day wedding ceremony. There's all kinds of elements that happen in a modern-day wedding ceremony. There's an exchanging of rings, but those rings are not magic rings that are going to keep the, the two people faithful to each other. They're symbolic, and there's value in it. It matters, but there's no magic spell. There's vows that are spoken to each other, but once again, speaking those vows does not mean that people will keep those vows. There's a symbolic power in the ceremony, though. Even if it's a, a Christian wedding, that couple might take uh, communion together for the first time, and that's meaningful. It's to establish that Christ is the foundation of their relationship. Well, that does not mean that Jesus is going to make sure that they never get divorced and it's all good and blah, blah, blah. It's not that way. It doesn't work that way. All of those elements of the ceremony matter and they're powerful, but none of them in and of themselves actually have power. In a similar way on this mountain, there's all kinds of things happening But I think what's going on is that there's power in the ceremony. Ceremonies have power, and God uses a ceremony from time to time to make a point. I've had the the privilege now to officiate quite a few weddings. And over the years, the perspective I have as the bride comes in has really changed. At first, everybody looks at the bride, right? Everyone stands and turns around and it's this pretty beautiful, incredible moment that she's been waiting for probably for a lifetime and he's been waiting for and there's this anticipation and it happens. And there's, there's beauty in that moment. There's also, as you're officiating a wedding, standing here most often, the groom's right next to you and it's a really cool perspective to get to watch his face and emotion and trying to hold it together or process everything that's happening as everyone else is watching the bride. 
But now as I'm slowly getting older, my perspective's changing even more because what I'm looking to next, hopefully in quite some time, is when my first daughter, my oldest, or whichever daughter gets married first, has this moment, and now I'm the father of the bride, I'm now watching from that perspective. I watch the father and imagine what he's feeling and processing, and that's overwhelming, even though I probably have more than a decade to go, I hope. But if she's like me, I have only a decade to go, so we'll see. Then there's this moment where the father walks his daughter to the front, and whoever's officiating the wedding says what? Who gives this woman to be the bride of this man? That's the one part the dad can't mess up. Supposed to say, her mother and I. And it's almost odd, it's almost historic and old, just traditional, because weddings are not the same, there's not the same financial implications as there was at one point. So what is the meaning of this question? Who gives this woman to be the bride of this man? I actually think it's still incredibly beautiful and powerful. I think there's an exchange of trust that's taking place. There's a father who loves his daughter, who has worked hard to provide for her, to protect her, to bring out the best of her, recognizing Jesus makes everybody brilliantly, and his daughter was given as a gift that he was meant to sculpt and help her become who Jesus created her to be. And then in this question and in this moment, I imagine this father looks at his daughter and then looks at her very soon-to-be husband and goes, I'm now going to trust you. I am giving her away, and you will protect, and you will provide, and you will help bring the best out of her. Not because she's not capable, but because that's part of God's beautiful design in this partnership. That's a lot of trust. I imagine there's this stare of like, you better get this right. I'm still working on that stare. Hopefully I have more than a decade for it. There's power in this ceremony. And there's an expectation that that boy who's becoming a man will take that moment very seriously. Because if he doesn't, I will have an issue with him. Hopefully, we've established that beforehand. But there's a significance, there's a weight to him honoring that man's daughter in that moment. That word honor I think matters. Not only is there just a weight and a gravity to the moment, but there's a request that above all else, no matter what, above yourself, you will honor her. I go back now to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. That's what I believe is happening here. The other things mattered, but God is coming to his people and he is saying, he's already declared, here's my offer to you. You are my treasured possession. I chose you. I heard your cry. I saved you. I will honor you and I will take you seriously. I will be your God and you will be my people. And they say, we want to be your people. And so he creates this ceremony and says, take this seriously and honor me. So my question for myself this week as I process this passage, my question for us and for you today is do you honor Jesus in the relationship you have with him? Do you take Jesus seriously? Or is he compartmentalized? Is there a, a quick little ceremony and you're like, yay, I get to go to heaven and not go to hell. That was great. And then you move on. Are we honoring Jesus with the relationship that we have with him? Here's what's about to happen for Israel. 
They're going to experience the faithfulness of Yahweh God. He will not fail them. He will love them. He will protect them and provide for them. They will be faithful to him for about seven seconds, and then it all goes south. And then they'll get it together again, and they'll love him and follow him and worship him and live the life he has intended that's good, and then they'll fail him and reject him time and time again. And this cycle continues. And guess what? No matter how many times it happens, he goes, hey, here I am. And I choose you, and I love you, and I want you, and I made you brilliantly, and I want to help bring the best out of you. I have something good for you in spite of your lack of faithfulness. Yet, before any of that happens, here they stand at this moment with this ceremony, and God still makes the request. I will promise to take you seriously and honor you. Will you take me seriously and honor me? That's a question as we follow Jesus I think we need to ponder. It also kind of begs the question of what does that actually mean? So I want to kind of go on a tangent now and process what does a relationship built on honoring both people in the relationship look like? How can you know whether or not you actually do honor Jesus and the relationship you, you might have with him. And so I have a handful of, of thoughts for you to process. They're not rules. They're not perfect. But I think they're kind of a foundation or a framework of how you can think about a relationship and whether or not it's built on honor or maybe just using the other person in the relationship, which I know I have a tendency to do with God. Number one is this. So often, I think we have this tendency to only refer to God as God, which is his title. We've talked about this. That is not very intimate or personal. And what tends to happen is if we only pray to God or talk about God or talk to God or whatever it is, instead of Jesus or Yahweh, which is his name, he functions as a compartmentalized part of our life that's very distant and not personal. And it's hard to honor just the title. It's hard to honor someone who's very far and not near. I think one of the things that we need to do is question how personal and interactive and intimate is the relationship that we have with Jesus. If you only call somebody by a title, what you have is a functional relationship, not a personal relationship. Is your relationship with Jesus more functional or more personal? That's something to, to question. Another a thing that can be helpful as kind of a, a practice is to assume the best. This is some of the, the best advice I think I ever received in marriage that took me a long time uh, to probably get down. Hopefully, I'm better at it now, but assume the best about the other person. You don't assume the best about an ethereal, distant God, but you might assume the best about somebody that you know well and have had history with. When, when Chelsea and I were about to get married, somebody said, yeah, work on always assuming the best. And for like three minutes, I pretended I knew what that meant, but I didn't know what it meant. So finally, I asked, like, what does that actually look like? And uh, this, this woman was like, well, there's going to be times where she does things that upset you. She doesn't show up, or she's not on the right time, or this or that. In those moments... Don't tell yourself a story or don't listen to the story of why she had this plan to not be there, blah, blah, blah. Assume the best. Assume something happened. Assume her heart is right. And that was such good advice because almost always the intent is not bad. And if you're in any type of relationship, you know, once we start telling stories and making assumptions, that's where disasters are created. How often does that happen, though, with the father? 
How often when something's going on in your life, circumstances hit, good or bad, you make assumptions about what he's like and who he is and what he's doing. And oftentimes, back to lightning striking, I don't think we assume the best about our God, but in a relationship built on honor, we trust who he is and we assume the best. Next thing is to be aware of values and preferences. Again, if he's just God, if he's just a distanced distanced title, you probably aren't super aware of what he prefers and values. It's the same thing back to, to marriage, when Chelsea and I first got married, we'd talk about going out to eat or whatever, and we both had this sort of good, like, sacrificial love thing where we would pick the place we didn't want to go. I'd, like, think, what is the place I definitely don't want to eat? And for some really stupid reason, my, my mind would tell me that's definitely where she wants to go, because that makes sense. And she would do the same. And so all that would happen for, like, two years of marriage as we spent money and ate food we hated. It was really not very smart eventually, we learned to actually communicate. And my patterns and tendencies, she'd say, hey, where do you want to eat or what do you want to do? And I'd say, I want Mexican food. And then I'd say, but I really don't care. Whatever you want would be good. And we would learn to do that. And then the next day, she'd go, hey, any thoughts of what we want for dinner? And I would say, yeah, Mexican food. <laughs> and I'd learn what she wanted. And then the next day, she'd be like, hey, what do you want? It's still not changed. We're on like 11 years. It's breakfast, lunch, dinner. I'm good with that. But we actually got to a place where we learned what each other likes and dislikes. It was really easy for her. Um, but we learned to communicate and process. It's the same with Jesus. You don't read this book, the scriptures, the Bible, to like pay time. Oh, I did my devotional today. It went great. Now God loves me. I'm not going to get striked by lightning. Fantastic. If you're reading the, this book for that reason, I would say stop. Reading the Bible is probably bad for you, actually, which actually is a thing that happens. There can be many times reading the scriptures is bad for you. If you're doing it for the wrong reason, it's not going to be helpful. I'm not saying the word of God is not powerful. It is very powerful and effective. But Satan used the scriptures in all kinds of manipulative and powerful ways, too. We should read this book to get to know a person named Jesus who loves you more than you can begin to imagine. And as we read it in that way, to know him rather than to please him or protect ourselves from him, notice the posture around studying the scriptures that begins to change things. Next thing, instead of asking, would this be okay with Jesus, ask, what does Jesus delight in? It's a very different question. It's a very different way to kind of come about the same thing. But if you're anything like me, especially if you grew up in, in, in the church, there's a good chance that you might approach Jesus in this like, what I want to do is not upset him. And so we do things to avoid upsetting God. So again, he doesn't strike us with lightning, which I've yet to see happen. Instead of going, no, the place, the foundation of, a, of the relationship is not fear, it's recognizing that Jesus is actually good. Hear me on that for a second, because I don't think we grasp this often. Jesus is actually good. He's the creator of all that is good, all that you enjoy and delight in, the best moments, the best celebration, the best food, primarily Mexican. Everything that is good comes from Jesus. He's not boring. And I think we get distracted on that. It's a better question to go, what brings my wife delight? If I can plan a date or an opportunity with our kids or something like that to go, what makes her smile deeply? 
What will make her giggle? What is good? Jesus is an actual person that delights. You know what he often delights in too? When you enjoy something and recognize it was a gift from him. He also delights when you embrace who he's made you to be and use your gifting and become the, the, the man or the woman that he's designed you to be. Not out of a need for achievements, but to embrace the fact that he is, once again, good. In any relationship centered on honoring the other, you'll learn to display value in your own way. How do you display value to Jesus? Actually, I think it's not any different than how you do to another human. It can be words you say. It can be a practice of generosity to say you're of this value. It can be time. It can be posture. It can be a whole variety of things. But are you in some way doing something to display to Jesus you are of value? Not to earn his love. You can't do that. Not to make up for things you've done poorly. That doesn't work. But just to say this relationship with a real person, not a distant, ethereal, spiritual God that lives somewhere in the sky, is good and worth it and you matter. There's significance, there's weight in our relationship with Jesus. If you honor the, the person in a relationship, you also guard yourself from other loves. Uh, I wear this wedding ring and about six months of the year, I love it. And about six months of the year, it really drives me crazy. And I'll go for days without wearing it. However, if I'm ever on a trip, I always wear my ring. Doesn't mean anything's going to happen. But there's some symbolism about guarding myself from other loves. That can come in a variety of form or fashions. Do you guard yourself from other loves? that might be looking to pull you and take you away from our first love, which is Christ. Second to last, don't hide anything. Some other really great advice I, I got from a mentor was, anytime you start playing games in your marriage, like manipulative, passive-aggressive type of games, something's wrong and you just need to get some blunt, candid conversation out there. Playing games is always going to lead to trouble. It never does what you want it to do. What I mean is like if you go, hey, I'm going to do this so that she learns to do that. Or finally, she'll then understand that. Like that is not going to happen. It doesn't work. It only compounds the problem normally. But guess what? As silly as it is because God knows everything, we do that with him. And go, hey, before I pray to him in this way or take the risk he's asking me to or be honest in this way, First, I got to do these things. We play these games. We hide things. Are you hiding anything from the Father? What emotions do you allow yourself to feel or express with Him? What conversations do you have? What fears do you process? What triumphs do you celebrate? Are you hiding anything from Him? A relationship built on honor doesn't hide. Lastly, make sure the relationship is resilient throughout circumstances. A relationship built on honor will not be crushed by circumstances, but it will endure circumstances. We can't control most of our circumstances. They're going to come and go, broken and beautiful, good and bad. But a relationship built on honor, on a commitment, on a choice, will endure circumstances. Back to the, the wedding we talked about 
earlier. I imagine myself on this day walking my daughter down the aisle trying to, to keep it together. And then there's this question, who gives this man to be the bride of this woman? And hopefully I don't mess it up. And I say, her mother and I, and we've already interviewed the guy for quite some time, and it's good to go. And imagine with me for just a moment that even though normally the guy says the I do's first, in this case, the girl does. And so my daughter's name is Aaliyah, and whoever's officiating the wedding walks up and goes, do you, Aaliyah, take, we'll say Sean, to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, to love and to cherish for better, for worse, for richer and poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as you both shall live. If so, say, I do, and she says, I do, and there's this moment of excitement and this overwhelming picture of what's about to happen, and then it's his turn, and whoever's officiating the wedding looks now at him and says, do you, Sean, take Aaliyah to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, to love and to cherish for better or for worse, for richer and poorer in sickness and in health, as long as you both shall live. If so, say, I do. And then there's silence. And it's awkward. And then this guy goes, um, I'm not too sure about this. Like, for richer, definitely, but poorer, I don't know if I want to sign up for that. I got to sign my name here somewhere, right? In health, for sure, but in sickness, like, well, sure, if, if she's sick for a couple days, I can help take care of her, but if this is like a lifelong thing she's gonna be going through, I don't know if I wanna do that. At that point, I object to this wedding. I'm not good with it. I'm not okay with the transfer of trust because two things are happening. He's not taking seriously the ceremony, the moment, the weight, the gravity, and he's not honoring my daughter. There's something like that that actually does happen in our relationship with Jesus. Now hear me on this. It is not about what we do or do not do. Israel was about to fail again and again and again and again, and God would be faithful to them no matter what. Yet, he still made the request, I will take you seriously and honor you. Will you take me seriously and honor me as your God? So I just want to leave us with that question today. My hope is we live in citizens of the, the greater Prescott area or wherever you're from, that we can practice taking Jesus seriously because he's actually worth it. He's actually good. He's not boring. He takes us on a pretty incredible, epic, scary adventure filled with all kinds of challenges and delight and good. He's faithful when he's on the cross and he's faithful when he makes the best wine at the wedding. He is good. He's worthy of our honor and taking serious. And even when we mess that up, when, not if, he is faithful to you no matter what. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you for the incredible God that you are. I pray that you would uh, overwhelm us with the knowledge of your love and goodness. Allow us to experience you more, to know you. May you work mightily in our lives. Help us to take you seriously and to honor the love that you've offered. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us once again. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.